This Sunday we begin a new series entitled To the Cross and Beyond. And it will end on Sunday morning with Dr. Hugh Richardson uh, preaching our Easter message. And you will find an insert in your bulletin. And on the back of the insert is a Passion Week event and a sermon schedule. And what we ask you to do is take this to place it in your Bible. And as you read through Passion Week, as you read these different portions of Scripture, that you connect and relate to that which is happening in the life of Christ. It is a special time for us as a church. It's a special time for us as Christians during this time of remembrance, this time of understanding better what Christ has done for us. And as we begin this journey to the cross and beyond, we begin this week with a look at Monday of Passion Week found in the book of Mark, the 11th chapter, beginning with verse 12. It is the day day after Jesus makes his triumphant entry into the city of Jerusalem as a conquering king. The streets were filled with the children waving the palm branches, screaming and crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a scene in those narrow streets of Jerusalem. As the crowd pushes and tugs to see Jesus as he comes through. Jesus is hearing these words and seeing this activity. And in our language, we would say he was pumped. He was excited. It was flowing through his veins. He heard the words. But he understood what was really going to take place. And after all this excitement, Jesus retires outside the city. And on Monday... He makes his way here in verse 12 back to Jerusalem. We'll begin reading in verse 15 where it says, And then, and they came to Jerusalem, and he went into the temple, into the temple area, the porch and the courts, and began to drive out those who sold and bought in the temple area. And he overturned the four-footed tables of the money changers and the seats of those who dealt in doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry any household equipment through the temple enclosures, thus making the temple area a shortcut traffic lane. And he taught and said to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. It used to be the new title of the sermon, okay? Someone caught me out front and said, for sales, the temple? Unusual, but as I began to work on this even more, I went, you know, I remember there's a television program on HGTV that is love it or list it. You have this designer who tries to remodel these old houses and always finds what? Water has done its damage. The bugs have gotten into the woodwork. There's always something that will never give the family all that they want or desire. And then there's the guy that wants to sell them a new house. And he's doing his very best to find the right house for them. And it's an interesting program. As I watch it, I realize that uh, there comes a time in the program in which the couple has to decide, am I going to stay in this house and love it for another 10 or 15 years, or am I going to sell it? And move to a new place. You know, Jesus also came to that place. 
as he entered into the temple area because the nation of Israel, when we read this passage, has come to that decision-making point. They've come to that place that they need to decide whether as a nation, as a people, they are going to hold on to the past, hold on to the old covenant, or make a decision to turn and follow Jesus Christ. And it begins there in verse 15 where he begins to clean the temple. And as you look at that passage of Scripture, realize that there are buyers and sellers in this courtyard. They're buyers and sellers because there was a need. What was going on was providing a convenience for the people of Israel, for the children of God, because they were pilgrims. They had traveled from long distances, and they were making their way from Asia Minor and from Egypt and from Mesopotamia and from all the different regions around and making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The city of Jerusalem had spruced up. They had painted, they had cleaned, they had gotten their rooms ready for the many that would come in. It was an exciting time in the city. And these buyers were out there selling and buying the things that they needed for the Passover. As they traveled, they didn't want to carry the doves. They didn't want to bring the sheep. They didn't want to have to haul the livestock down for the sacrifice. And so they waited till they got to Jerusalem, and there they would buy what they needed for the Passover. And, of course, if there's buyers, there is always sellers. There is somebody that will see the opportunity and seize the opportunity And weeks before the Passover, they begin to develop these little roadside stores. And as the pilgrims would come in, they would begin to sell them what they needed for their offerings. And of course, as good businessmen, they jacked the price up. And so as Jesus drew near to the temple area, many of them had moved back into the court of the Gentiles. And they were buying and selling selling doves and selling uh, the animals that were needed. But there was also the money changers, those that would make exchange because they were coming from Roman-dominated areas and coming from Greek areas, and they had all kinds of money. But the temple only required to pay their temple tax their coinage. And so therefore, they would have to go to the exchange and change that coins. When we lived in Seoul, Korea, it was interesting because we would have to exchange our American dollars for the Korean uh, coinage and their and currency. And we would watch all these exchanges because we found out that if you went to the bank, you didn't get the best price. And so you would have all kinds of shops and all kinds of stores that they would exchange your money. And you would look for the best rate that you could get. So that you could get more. And the rates fluctuated every single day. So you were always watching. You were always looking for that best rate. And the money changers were doing the same thing. They were making that business of exchanging the coin into the temple coinage so that they could make a profit. And they gouged them, needless to say, to exchange their coins for the temple coins. And even if you gave the money changer, more money than was necessary, if he had to make change for you, he would tax you on the change that he made. It was a business beyond measure. And then in the court of the Gentiles, when you look at a model of the temple, you will realize that they built uh, 
courtyards outside the temple proper. These were the courts of the Gentiles. And in the courts of the Gentiles, those that were God-fearers, those that knew God but were not Jewish, found themselves worshiping in these courtyards. But what had happened is that as you come from the Mount of Olives, as you come from the gardens and made your way into Jerusalem, it was shorter to go through these courtyards to get into the city proper. And so they were making their way through the courtyards with all their furniture, with all their belongings, and making their way through this court as a shortcut. As you look at that, you realize that many things are happening in this time in which Jesus walks into this courtyard of the Gentiles. And it upsets him. It gets him to the place that he understands that the nation of Israel had lost its sight, had lost its vision, had lost all that it was to be. It was no longer a house of prayer. It was no longer a house of worship. And at this particular time, a transition is taking place. And he begins to talk about not the temple, Herod's temple, but he's talking about us, the Christian as being the temples of God, that there was coming a change, a change in which God would no longer live in Herod's temple, no longer would he live in the Holy of Holies, no longer would he abide in his Shekinah glory there only to be seen by the priests that were there. It was that he would live and abide in men and women. And as you look at Scripture, you realize in 2 Corinthians, the 6th chapter, verse 16, he says, For we are the temple of the living God. And as we begin our own spiritual journey, as we begin to follow him, there has to be this internal search in our lives. There has to be a renewing. And if you're going to sell your house, one of the first things you do is what? Clean it, I hope. Okay. Many of us have went out looking at houses a lot, haven't we, in our lives. And it's amazing how when people put their house on the market, they don't even clean up. You know, you walk in and there's clothes all over the place and you're going, I don't know about this. And you open some closets and you're afraid of what you find inside. If we're going to get right with God, it begins with that self-examination. It begins with, a, with us addressing the sin that reigns within us. And you say, preacher, sin in me? Are you kidding? You know, one of the very first steps in understanding where we are is to understand we are sinners. And to understand, as 1 John 1, 8 says, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We are sinners and we do sin. And we have sinned this week. We have done things and said things and thought things and held things within us in such a way that it has been displeasing and dishonoring to God. It may be blatant or it may be very subtle, but we have sinned this week. And it ought to break our hearts as the Holy Spirit of God reveals that to us. Because you see, not only do we deceive ourselves if we say we haven't sinned, it also says in Scripture that when we have sin, many times it blocks our vision. Many times sin comes in and narrows our vision that we can't see really the reality that is around us. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, he says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, 
but do not notice the log that is in your own. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own? Jesus is telling us that many times we are so set on seeing the fault and the sin and the mistakes and the failures of those around us that we can't see what's going on within us, that we can't see and hear the voices that are working within us. He says that sin not only blocks our vision, not only deceives us, but it aims to defeat our progress, our progress that we ought to aim for the progression, that we ought to aim for that which takes us one step at a time, that we are not targeting and not holding as the expectation that today I'm going to be perfect, today I'm going to step one step. There in 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 16, he says, And whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who were unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What Paul's saying is, that when we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, he took the veil away from us so that we now could become a reflection of the Father and that we become more and more the reflection as we progress in our Christian life and that we ought to understand that it's one step, one step at a time. But you know, as I look at that, I realize that not only does it take a cleansing, but in this passage of Scripture... There is a choice that has to be made. In this passage of Scripture, it is a pivotal point, not only for the nation of Israel, but for the world. It is the most crucial thing that takes place because Jesus has spent his three years of ministry. He has uh, endured the time of coming from heaven, leaving his place with the Father, Becoming a child and enduring the, the effects of this body, he has brought it all to this point so that Israel will make a decision. And as you look at that, I realize something, that Israel had a choice. They could cling or they could change. And they could change is part of the challenge that was before them. But notice, when you determine that you need a change, you begin to dream and have some great expectations. I love to watch another HGTV program called Property Virgins. They bring these young people in and they say, what, would, what, what are you looking for in a house? Well, I want a four-bedroom, three baths. I want a big yard. I've got to have three-car garage, stainless steel. I've got to have uh, granite countertops. I want wood floors. I want everything, but I want it for $125,000. And I sit there, and I'm going, oh, brother, me. You know, and they end up paying $500,000 for a house that, if the wind blows, is probably going to fall over sometime. But, you know, we, when we get ready to change, we get some expectations. We get some things that we long for, things that we think that we really need in our lives. But notice Israel. The children of Israel, mainly the leaders of Israel, 
they begin to be questioned about what they're going to do. Choose you this day. But notice they were wanting to cling to the old covenant. And what did the old covenant say? You got to keep sacrificing, don't you? Every single time, every time you sin, you got to sacrifice that forgiveness. You got to sacrifice that dove. You got to sacrifice that lamb. You got to participate in the Passover every single year. You've got to obey the strict laws because in the nation of Israel and with the Jewish nation and as believers in the Jewish nation, they can only walk so far on the Sabbath day. I had a rabbi that worked for me in Korea. And when he came in country, he had a large family. He came to the hotel, and I saw him standing outside the hotel, and I said, Ira, what are you doing? He says, I'm looking for a door. And I went, there's the door. He goes, no, I'm looking for a door that I can pull. I cannot go through a power door on the Sabbath. I went, okay. And then he would go, well, I got to go down and buy a rice cooker. And I went, okay, go to the PX, buy a rice cooker. He says, but I got to baptize it. I went, how you got to baptize it? He says, I got to put it in running water. And I went, in Seoul, Korea? The, young, the, the river is not very clean. He says, I've got to do it. He went and bought it, took it down to the river, baptized it. I hope he sterilized it when he got home. But he lived by these rules. And on Saturday, he could not drive in a car. He complained to the chief of chaplains on post that he wanted a parking, lot, a parking space in front of the chapel. He said the Protestant chaplain had a parking place, the Catholic chaplain had a parking place, and the Jewish chaplain ought to have a parking place. And I went, but Ira, you can't drive on the Sabbath. Why do you need a parking place? You know, you got to walk to church. They gave him a house close so that he could take his family and walk them to church. Lots of rules, all kinds of rules, all kinds of holidays, all kinds of observances. They had those strict rules. They called for limiting access to God. They were clinging to the idea that the only place that you could worship God was where? In the temple. And who could go in there? Only the priests could go in there. And so the people would come to worship, but they could not be in the presence of God. And therefore they had a choice. Continue the sacrifices, continue obeying the rules, have limited access to God. And what happened is that their religion and their, their faith became form. Without substance, they were doing it over and over again. Standing and reading, sitting and praying, coming and going, doing it over and over and over and over and over again, almost like our bulletin. Oh, I'm in danger, right? Walking out there in thin, thin ice right now. You know, we get into that same thing. We like it the same way, the same time, with the same form with the same ideas, because it's comfortable. It's familiar. It makes us feel good. It does just exactly what I need. But Jesus came and said, oh, you got to make a change. 
you got to make a change. And you got to make that change that says what? He's changing the paradigm. He's changing the very concept. He's saying there is not a continuous sacrifice. There's only one. And it was made on the cross by Jesus Christ. One sacrifice. There in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verse 1, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the thing can never with those sacrifices with which they offer year by year continually make the comer un- thereunto perfect. Jesus says those sacrifices will never get you into heaven. All that form and all that obedience to the law will never get you into heaven. It is that one sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. Notice the second thing he says that changes that paradigm. He says, for there's a new law. There's a new sheriff in town, okay? There's not these Ten Commandments. There's not the book of Deuteronomy. There's not the book of Numbers. There are not all the priestly rules that came on there. It is there recorded in Matthew, the 22nd chapter, verse 37. He says, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the laws and the prophet hang on these two commandments. He says, first of all, everything that was done in Israel under the law was simply a picture of what Jesus was going to do on the cross. That's all it was, was a, pro-tell, a, a telling, a prophecy, a fulfillment, a revealing of what Christ was going to do. And he says, second of all, all the laws that thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. He says it can all be brought together in loving your neighbor and loving God with every ounce within you. Because you see, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to gossip about him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to take advantage of him. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to ridicule them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to bully them on the Internet. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to criticize them. If you love your neighbor as God has called us to do, we will live right with him. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul, the idea of giving to church doesn't become an issue. Because I'm giving because I love God. And I love the ministry that he has for me. And so the paradigm is is changing. No longer sacrifice, but one. No longer all these rules, but love. And notice third of all, he says, and it calls for unrestricted access. We have access to the Father. Notice what he says in Ephesians 2.18. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. We can go to the Father right now. I don't need a priest. I don't need to go to a confessionary. I don't need to go and do anything but approach God, my Father, face to face. And that's powerful stuff. That is something that the world doesn't understand. You can pray anywhere. You can be with God anywhere. And then the natural action is, well, you know, when I'm at the beach, I can sit and be with God. You can. But God wants you to be in his house even when you're at the beach. Okay. 
He wants you to serve him. He wants you to be with the fellowship of believers. He wants you to be the encourager. But notice lastly, the focus now becomes not on form, not whether you stand at the right time, not whether you sit at the right time, not whether you say the right words or don't say the right words. It's no longer form. It's spirit. Notice John 4, 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are kinds of worship the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I mess up the bulletin and the order of service. It really doesn't matter. Now, it matters to some of us A-types, okay? It matters to some of us that like it right on time, right? And I'm over. But I'm at the end, too. Form. He says, I want you to worship me in spirit. And if the Lord causes you to raise your hand, then raise your hand. If God causes you to say amen and leads you to say amen, then you ought to be able to say amen. If the Spirit of God moves you, then you ought to respond. And it makes no difference what the person beside you thinks. It makes no difference what the preacher thinks. It makes no difference what the children think. It makes no difference what the deacons think. It makes no difference what anyone thinks. I'm going to do what God compels me and drives me and moves me to do. And so they had a choice. What did Israel do? Mark the 11th chapter, verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard of this and kept seeking some ways to destroy him. For they feared him because the entire multitude was stuck was struck with astonishment at his teaching. The priests were afraid. The priests were afraid. They were afraid that this Jesus who came into the city with all this celebration would bring about a change. And they were afraid that the truth would win out and no longer would the temple be the center. No longer would the priesthood be the center. No longer would all the rules and regulations be the center. There was a change in the wind and the leaders were afraid and the leaders continued to do their thing because they just wanted, as Nike says, do what? Just do it, okay? Just come to church Spend your hour, check the block, put in your envelope, and guess what? The rest of the week is mine because I've just did it. But God wants more than that. He wants more. He wants us this morning to open our hearts to the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. He wants to turn our lives upside down. He wants to reveal that hidden sin. He wants to go into those places that we thought that no one would ever find it. He wants to bring it to the surface and he wants us to deal with it. He wants to forgive it. We can elect to reject his offer. We can just say, no, God, I want to stay back here with the form. 
I want to stay back here with the rules and the regulations. It's comfortable to me. Or you can elect to say, yes, Lord, wherever you lead, I'll follow. We can elect to move towards the cross and experience his forgiveness and his redemption. The question this morning is, do you elect to love what you had and what you have? Or are you willing to change and to accept what Christ offers? Forgiveness, redemption, freedom. Isn't that what the passage of Scripture says? There's freedom in the Lord to serve him. Freedom to share the good news. Freedom without fear. Freedom to overcome. How will you choose this morning? Will you choose to hold on to the comfortable, the satisfying? Are you willing to be challenged to accept Christ and what he offers today? Shall we pray? Father God, we come now. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And Lord, we know that many times we have failed you. Many times we have found ourselves just going through the motions. Many times we have just walked in the steps that have been placed before us without understanding. But Lord, you presented to the nation of Israel on this particular time a choice, a clear choice, an obvious choice. Just as you do to each and every one of us, may we choose Jesus. May we choose the way of the cross. May we choose you as our Lord and Savior. Now, Father, as we close today, as your spirit leads, Father, reveal, move, and compel us to seek you in all that we say and do. For we ask it in Christ's name.